Uh, like I said earlier, my name is Matt, and I have the joy of being able to serve here uh, with you guys at Grace on Campus. Um, at this point in the night, what we do is we open the Bible, and we look at a passage of Scripture together, uh, and then we explain and defend and define the truth uh, found in God's Word. And we do that uh, every, almost every, at least, Friday night, but uh, we also do it several times on Sunday uh, together as uh, the church with the rest of our church. Uh, tonight we will be in a different text, but I'm excited because next week uh, we'll start our uh, year-long study of the book of Philippians. And so I'm really excited to jump into that uh, joy-filled book with you guys and to learn uh, how to uh, readily and uh, evermore drink deeply of uh, the joy found in Christ. So we'll begin that study uh, next Friday, Lord willing. Uh, tonight, though, we'll uh, take a look at one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and we'll get to what that verse is in just a second. But uh, I want to begin by asking you to think of a place in nature that you went to, maybe it's the last one you went to, where you could look down from a high place onto a vast area below. Uh, maybe it was Potato Chip Rock or uh, the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or I know for some of you it might have been Angel's Landing or Observation Point. That's the, the most boring name ever for an observation point, but it's a thing. Look it up. Uh, maybe for you, since you're California kids, most of you, it's, it was some unnamed edge of a cliff next to the ocean, right next to some rich person's private beach. Uh, think of that place and the feeling you get as you shuffle your toes to the edge. There's almost a power of perspective in that moment as you stare down at the ocean or the canyon or the rocks below. As you stare down, maybe you think of the wildlife that must be below in the, the shrubbery or maybe your, uh, your thoughts are on God and you think of the vastness of God's creation. Maybe you think of how much of the world uh, man has barely set foot on, and you think of the frontiers of creation. But maybe if you're like me, you're drawn back to just how thankful you are, you're standing on solid ground. And if you're like me, you take a few steps back. Uh, our passage uh, tonight is one such place in the Bible. It's a place with a view. And this ain't no corner office kind of view. This is one of the mountaintops of the New Testament, one of the pinnacles of God's gospel truth. It's really a vista of theological truth, all just in one verse. Tonight, we'll look at Romans 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Uh, verse 1. And uh, chapter 8 of Romans, if you know, is uh, as a whole, is rightfully one of the most quoted and most 
beloved chapters in the Bible. This great chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation from the love of God. The great eight, it's been called, and it's full of rich, God-glorifying truth. You see, if it isn't already, Romans 8 ought to be one of the most highlighted, one of the most underlined, one of the most wrinkly, most tear-soaked pages in your Bible. And tonight, we get to parachute in on this great summit of Scripture. And we'll do some climbing in Romans, but one sermon in Romans 8, I mean, this is, it's almost cheating. It's, it's like watching drone footage and saying you've been there. Uh, one sermon in Romans, but uh, we'll do our work and we'll do some climbing uh, to get to this great summit of spiritual truth. Tonight in Romans 8, verse 1, we'll see an amazing truth. We'll see that if you know Jesus as Savior, you are no longer condemned. If you know Jesus as Savior, you are no longer condemned. You are acquitted. You are set free. Simple truth. But if we slow down and understand exactly what this means, we'll see what a great view that this is. As you start a new quarter, I'm sure your focus coming into tonight, and even maybe right now, is probably on what's ahead of you in this quarter. Uh, your course load, maybe for you it's graduating if you're a senior or you're a freshman way ahead of yourself. Maybe it's clubs and recruiting and auditions. In the face of this kind of achievementism and earning things uh, by the strength of your own grip this quarter, this passage is a wake-up call to the incredibly rich mercy of God in your life. Uh, to the fact that while your everyday reality from Monday through Friday may seem to depend on your efforts, the very most important thing in your life is not of your own doing. And if this group is like any other subset of people in the world, this one verse will be tonight much more than just even that kind of reminder. You, you see, in a group like this, some are wary, some are wounded, some are struggling, some are doubting. And Romans 8 verse 1 is truth to comfort the weary. And it's healing for the wounded. And it's support for the struggling. And it's assurance for those doubting. Let's look at this great verse. If you're not already there, Romans 8, verse 1, says this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we get to have in your word. Would your spirit illumine our minds and open our hearts to the truth that you have in this verse. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. In the context of this mountain peak of the New Testament, that is Romans 8. 8 verse 1 is solid ground. It's firm footing. It's security and safety. You see, this single verse proclaims a no condemnation status. It's gospel acquittal declared in the person and in the work of Jesus. This passage simply states, in Christ we are no longer condemned. And so tonight, very simply, let's look at the truth that will help us realize and understand our no condemnation status and what that means for our life. I want to look at it in three parts, three aspects, you could say, of our gospel acquittal. Three aspects of our gospel acquittal. The first is the declaration of our gospel acquittal. The declaration of our gospel acquittal. I want to spend the first part of our time focused on those two simple words that are are the key to unlocking this whole verse. No condemnation. No condemnation. No condemnation. This is the amazing news found in this verse. The Christian is no longer condemned. The Christian is spared. What exactly does this mean? No longer condemned by what? Spared from what? Why exactly is this such good news? Well, in order to understand just what's so astounding about this no condemnation status, we need to first understand what we are condemned for. We need to understand the danger that we are being spared from if you are a Christian. You see, at this great mountain peak, this picture that we've painted, what makes this view so amazing is that there is a cliff right there. There's nothing novel about solid ground when you're in a room like this. Because there's not a cliff right there. When there is no immediate and apparent danger, it's not a big deal that you are safe and secure. Uh, but Romans 8.1 shows us uh, that there is no condemnation, and that is an amazing truth if we would see the cliff that is right there, right in front of us. Every one of us, every man and woman on this planet has a cliff right there. We need to look down the ravine a little bit. We need to look off the cliff right in front of us before we do anything else. This word condemnation paints a legal picture in our minds and in the minds of the original readers. It, it entails the pronouncement of guilt, the declaration that somebody is guilty, but also the carrying out of the punishment that goes along with it. And we stand before God, the 
righteous judge and the evidence presented would be an open and shut case against us. Guilty. And the Bible tells us we are doubly guilty. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. Romans as a whole, the book, tells us all about that. Turn to Romans 1 and we'll see that. Look at Romans 1. Romans 1, verse uh, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This verse simply declares God's rightful wrath, His rightful or righteous anger against unrighteousness. God is a holy God, and so He has wrath upon anything that is not holy like He is. Look at verse 19, that same chapter. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul's explaining here that God has revealed Himself as the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. And at a baseline level, all mankind can see that there is a God. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These verses describe the natural state of every man and every woman uh, that we know there is a God and we may even know God as found in His Word, but we deny Him the glory, the worship that He is due. And we push Him off. And this describes this downward spiral, both of our own individual hearts, uh, but of all of mankind as well. If we were to read Romans chapter 2, Paul would show us more of God's rightness or righteousness to judge mankind for its sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. I think it's a helpful uh, piece of the puzzle as we construct this view of the cliff. Uh, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. In chapter 2, Paul begins to show the different but synonymous plight that both Jews and Gentiles have. Jews with the revelation of God's law and Gentiles who did not have God's law, yet both condemned under God's righteous judgment against sin. Turn to Romans 3, and we see really the main idea of this condemnation we deserve. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. 
Paul's continuing his argument about Jew and Gentile and the differences, yet the same condemnation they come under because of sin and God's rightness to judge it. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here Paul is quoting several psalms in Isaiah and Jeremiah to say one thing. That one thing is this. No one is righteous. None is righteous. Not even one. Look at verse 23 of that chapter. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No one comes to meet God's holy standard. No one is perfect. But in the sense that Romans means. We all Sin, we all do or think or feel things that are high-handed rebellion against a holy God. He created us to reflect His character and His nature. We were made to bear His image. But instead, we choose sin. We choose ourselves. We choose to do things that He hates or we choose to ignore things that He wants us to do. We tell mostly the truth most of the time. We cheat just a little bit in that card game with our friends. We judge others silently though in our hearts. But even at church, we do it. We lust and we fantasize and we lose self-control. We indulge and then rinse and repeat. We boil over in anger and our hearts run in impatience with even our best friends. Our love runs short where it ought to overflow. We constantly choose self satisfaction we constantly choose self-gratification and self-indulgence and self-pity and self-aggrandizement and self-service over a humble and devoted obedient life that God calls us to a life of worship to him the worthy creator we in Romans 1 terms exchange the glory of God and the honor of knowing and serving God for idols 
whether in the image of ourselves or the things of this world. Romans shows us it's not just that we choose sin. Romans shows us that sin is also in our very nature. Look at Romans chapter 5. Just one verse there, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Through Adam, we all inherited a sin nature, this disposition that all of mankind has to sin against God. That in our very flesh, we were born into sin. And because of our sin, both by nature and by choice, both, we stand condemned. That is the cliff that is right there. Look at Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. These wages that Romans 6.23 talks about are what is earned by sin or what is paid out by sin. What is on the pay stub when you sin. It's death. Death gets paid out. It's what you earn. It's what you deserve. It's what I deserve. It's what we all deserve. It's what chapter 1, verse 27 calls the due penalty for their error. It's what we deserve. And so the incriminating evidence in this court case is literally in our hands. We are caught red-handed. This is complete and constant failure to do what we were created to do. That is worship our Creator. We fail, and what we deserve is death. We worship ourselves and our stuff and the letters after our names instead of our Creator. In this divine court, we stand condemned. This is the ravine we're looking down. This is the cliff that makes this view so amazing in 8.1. I don't know how many times you've been in a courtroom. I don't know how many times you've been in a courtroom, more specifically in the moment when a verdict is read. Probably for most of us, it's been more by proxy, by TMZ or ABC. These scenes can go, as you know, one of a few ways, right? Uh, maybe one way is that the verdict is, that is read is expected. And the scene is the winning lawyers congratulating each other for a five-digit paycheck. Uh, maybe another way that goes is it, it, this is a close one and we don't know the verdict. And when the verdict is read, there is a gasp. Uh, picture in your mind 
the defendant's relief as he's let off the hook. Well, there's a third way that this may go. And this verse, Romans 8, verse 1, has this kind of outcome that we sometimes see in those clips on the internet. The verdict is read, and it is not, it is not what anyone expected. And there is an outburst, and people have to be restrained or escorted out. It is a mess. And you're laughing because we all laugh at those clips. But here in Romans 8, verse 1, the gavel in the courtroom rings out. And against all the evidence stacked against us, the judge's voice, the voice of God himself declares, not guilty. Not guilty. And Satan, the great accuser, is screaming and yelling and the voices in our head protest and shout and our hearts condemn us and our doubt swells. But the verdict remains true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With that simple fact and without anything else, that, that is grace and peace with God. That is amazing truth that is to be met tonight, right now, with gratitude and worship and curiosity and wonderment at the good and gracious God who has set us free. This is the simple declaration of gospel acquittal. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, in this great verse, we see the design of gospel acquittal. The design of gospel acquittal. Uh, We've seen the declaration, really almost the definition of gospel acquittal. Now let's look at the design or the inner workings or the mechanism of this no condemnation status. This is to look at the first few words of this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is to answer the question, how is this now possible? You see, Romans 8.1 is not just that you've been let off the hook. This isn't nice uncle theology. This isn't just God closing his eyes to the bad stuff. When God releases us from the condemnation of sin, he does so still in faithful, never-changing, perfect justice. That's who he is. And so how does this work? How can a perfectly just and fair God let people be no longer condemned? Turn back to Romans 1. We need to look at another few verses in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 16. And Paul is talking about his own ministry of the gospel here. Uh, but he declares some truth that we need to see. He says there, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, literally the good news, 
for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, the very mechanism, the very design of the gospel of salvation is as shocking as is the truth of salvation itself. Uh, The fact that we are no longer condemned is a shocking and precious truth to us as we hear it. But that God would design a plan to make gospel acquittal possible by revealing His righteousness to us through the life and death and resurrection of His own Son? That God would give us, by His power, salvation to everyone who believes? That is an amazing thought. And so if God has revealed His righteousness to us you see if the packaging of this thing that's being given to us is God's righteousness on it how does this thing work how does this mechanism that's in this package work we this is good news seems almost too good to be true we need to open this thing up and take a look inside we need to have a taste we need to Taste and see here that the Lord is good in this. So let's look into what it means that there is therefore now no condemnation. Let's look into what chapter 11 calls the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God in this salvation plan. In the salvation plan of God, Romans 8.1 is telling us something has changed. Something is now different. Something is now available. It's now on the shelf, ready for for purchasing or ready for consumption. It's now different with this Jesus on the scene. Throughout Romans, Paul has given us a comparison, a before and after, a, a sort of spot the differences between the two pictures sort of puzzle. It's like a flip book, and he's sort of flipping pages back and forth, back and forth. It's to show us before and then now. Before Jesus came and now that Jesus has come. Before when the old, the law, was the front page news of God's revelation, and then Now, when the new has come, that is, that the revelation of God's righteousness is no longer the law as the front page news. That's in the third or fourth page. It's now front page news. God's righteousness is revealed in Jesus. It's before and now, before and now in Romans. Paul shows us throughout Romans that the law is a tutor, a barometer. For the timeless truth that we already looked at. No one is righteous. 
And Paul says in Romans, now no one is righteous, but now there is a Savior for all mankind, and he has finished his work. Turn to Hebrews, and we need to see this verse. Hebrews, just Hebrews chapter 1, and it's one of my favorite little verses there. Hebrews 1, in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our, excuse me, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If we were to turn to Colossians 1, we would see the same truth. Jesus is God's front page revelation of his righteousness. Jesus is God's last word. And in Romans, Paul tells us a similar thing. Go back to Romans chapter 3. I told you, we're Bible-flipping people, and you're getting another taste of that tonight. Romans 3, look at verse 21, and I know that we looked at a verse in this passage already, but I want, to see, I want you to see now it, it in its entire context. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Earlier when we looked at the terrible and awful news in Romans 3.23, that really and truly was only one part of the story in Romans 3. You see, the inner workings, the mechanism of salvation is what verse 22 says. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's see more of that in Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here in Romans 5, Paul shows us that that none of us would even dare die for our enemy. Yet God did just that. Those who hated him and those who did everything that he said not to do. He sent his son to pay the ultimate price. You see, God has designed this plan of salvation, a 
plan in which he sent his only son, Jesus, to become a man, yet still being fully God, who would live a life of perfect obedience and sinlessness, a life that you and I cannot live because we are sinners by nature and by choice. And this Jesus, by the very will of God, died a sinner's death, a death that he did not deserve. And he died this death as a sacrifice. The big word that we saw in Romans was propitiation or an atonement, a sacrifice for me and for you. In our layman's terms, we could say, he took our place. He took our place. And so that wrath, that rightful punishment that was due to me and to you, that due penalty for our error, came upon him on the cross instead of us. And the scriptures tell us three days later God raised him from the dead. He did not stay dead. And so this Jesus he bore our sin, and then by the power of God, he was raised in victory over sin and death. This is God's amazing plan for salvation, the design for gospel acquittal. You see, not only did Jesus bear our sin on the cross, the scriptures tell us that in his death on the cross, we were given his righteousness. You see, God took our unrighteousness away and placed it on Jesus, but then he also gave us the righteousness of his own Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think, says it best. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a lot of words and turns and logic to say. God made His sinless Son to be sin on the cross so that we might be God's righteousness. We might have that righteousness that Romans tells us God revealed to us in Jesus. This is what theology nerds call substitutionary atonement. This is a sacrificial swap. It's what Martin Luther famously called the great exchange. In the work of Jesus on the cross, you are given the perfect righteousness of God in exchange for the dirty rags of your sin and the failed attempts at good in your life. Oh, what grace, what what mercy, what kindness. We deserve death, and he has given us life. We deserve hell, and he has given us heaven. We deserve his wrath, and he has made us sons and daughters. We deserve condemnation, and for those who are in Christ Jesus, by placing their faith in him, there is now no condemnation. There's an island between the border of France and Spain. It's called Pheasant Island. There's a 
fancy French name for it that I can't pronounce, and there's a Spanish name for it that I can try to pronounce, but I won't. It's rather insignificant of an island. It's uninhabited, and it's only 660 feet long and 130 feet wide, and it's only been getting smaller. It's eroding for you environmental science majors. What is significant about this island is that the Treaty of the Pyrenees at the end of the Thirty Years' War was negotiated on this small island between France and Spain. And uh, among other things in that treaty, like, of course, royal marriages and land concessions and discussions and cryptocurrency, I'm just kidding. Uh, But among all these treaty things, one of the provisions, interestingly enough, about the Pheasant Island was that it would be passed back and forth between France and Spain every six months. They really meant it when they wanted peace. And so ever since 1659, when this treaty was made, the Pheasant Island has gone back and forth. Back and forth. Back and forth unceremoniously at times. Sometimes not even uh, with any sort of news or any sort of uh, official document to say so. Everyone just kind of knows that it happens. I think that with the kind of truth that we see in 8.1, that our hearts are like this. Our hearts condemn us. Uh, We know the truth uh, that we no longer bear our own sin as Christians, but we condemn ourselves. We're back and forth. Back and forth. Forgiven. Condemned. Forgiven. Condemned. Forgiven. Condemned. The the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21 and the truth of Romans 8.1 sounds the final buzzer, so to speak. And God has won. God has won by a landslide. This victory is by the definitive and final work of Jesus on the cross. And so salvation is secure. Forgiveness is secure. No more back and forth for the Christian. We are no longer condemned. One of our favorite songs, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless, Righteousness. 
the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life, it's hid with Christ on high. Christ, my Savior and my God. There is therefore now no condemnation There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer condemned. What gracious, what merciful news that we have in this truth. Let's look at our final part of this verse, the the distinction in gospel acquittal. This distinction in gospel acquittal. We've looked at the declaration of gospel acquittal. And now the design of how it all works. And finally, we need to see the distinction made in this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's an important distinction. Now, the Bible tells us that this acquittal, this no condemnation status, this freedom from sin, from both its grievous grasping power and its everlasting punishment, the Bible tells us it's available to all. Consider the verse we looked at earlier, Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God to who? Everyone who believes. Second Peter 3 tells us of uh, God's, God's patience. God's not slow to his promises, but it says, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It, this is a salvation available to anybody who would believe. Even you tonight, you may think that you are not worthy of this kind of salvation. You couldn't receive this kind of generous gift, but it is available for you. But the Bible also tells us that this is a salvation uh, not available to just the best and the brightest or the most spiritual or the most deserving or to the best church attenders or Bible readers. Uh, but to those who would humbly receive grace and mercy through faith in Jesus. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God, by his mercy, chose to come up with this plan of salvation before even time began. 
And so thoroughly and, and truly, the offer of salvation is available to all uh, men and all women. And the gracious news that it is, it is not of our own doing. This is God's work. Well, here in Romans 8, 1, we get a different view of the same truth. You see, this salvation, this no condemnation status, is available to specifically, what does the verse say? Those who are in Christ Jesus. It's for those whom, not by their own good deeds or efforts, not by their own achievement or accomplishment, but by faith in Christ, come to God. This phrase, those who are in Christ Jesus, speaks of more than just faith in Christ, more than just this object of faith. It's a grammar thing. If you're North Campus, you're with me. It's more than just the object of faith, more than just faith in Christ, although that is true. This is what nerdy theologians call union with Christ. When you see the phrase in Christ or in Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, it's speaking of our union with Christ. This is the believers being united, being bound to, being one with, being joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And there's no better place to understand this than in Romans 6. Uh, here, right after we hear the, of the magnanimous grace of God in chapter 5, as we did earlier, Paul is addressing in Romans 6 a logical, almost rhetorical question. Go to Romans 6. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He, he's answering a speculation. He's saying, okay, rhetorically speaking, if this grace is so great it's so amazing it, it takes care of all of my sin can i then just continue in sinning because then grace will just continue taking care of it right well paul's answer shows us uh, that we shouldn't continue in sin first of all but it shows us what we call our union with Christ. Look at verse 2. He says, By no means, or may it never be, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's continuing his argument to reason his way through why the Christian should not continue in sin and is not under the power of sin. And he says, don't continue in sin. Why? Because those who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in Him, were united with Him in His death, that we might consider ourselves also dead 
to sin. And then he says also the other half of it is that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, we were also raised from our deadness and sin to walk in, he says, newness of life. And Paul lands his argument in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That is beautiful and yet hard truth for fighting sin here in Romans 6. And that's a sermon for another time, but what I want us to take here is that this union with Christ is the concept we find in 8 verse 1. You see, it is by this union with Christ, this being in Christ Jesus, that Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, you are, Paul says, not in Christ. And so there is condemnation for you. But if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are in Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you. No sin that you commit, past, present, or future will be held against you. If you are truly in Christ, there is nothing you can do that will compromise your salvation or your standing with God or your relationship with Jesus. For those who are united with Him, through faith, dead to sin and alive in Him, there is now no condemnation. Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so it is also in Romans 8 that those who are in Christ find no condemnation for the sin we so rightfully deserve condemnation for. And yet I think as we struggle and fail and fight the uphill battle against sin, we forget this truth. We forget the gospel acquittal that we have. We forget our no condemnation status. Christian, find comfort here. Call this truth to mind over and over again this quarter. Sing its sweet truth to your soul in moments of doubt and despair. One commentator puts it this way. It follows that if condemnation as an objective reality has been removed, there is no legitimate place for condemnation as a subjective experience. He goes on to say, to insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. The passage right before this one, right before Romans 8, verse 1, depicts the very struggle I know that most of us go through. Because if I go through it, I know that you do too. This is our battle inside. Look at verse 22, Romans 7, 22. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we get stuck. We get stuck here in verse 24. But read on, Christian. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a faithful God who is faithful to you in the midst of the struggle and the doubt. There is a loving God who loves you through the sleepless nights after long days of doubt and repentance and searching and more doubt and struggle. This truth in 8 verse 1 is the pillow upon which you can rest your weary soul. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, when doubt reigns and struggle abounds, get to chapter 8. And maybe you don't know Jesus, and for you, you can find this great solace from the hamster wheel of living on your own effort, trying to please people, and whether you're willing to admit it or not, you're fearful of the judgment of God on your life. Regardless, Grace on Campus, may this great verse, Romans 8 verse 1, lend us great comfort and remind us of much grace. It's an offer available to all in salvation and throughout the rest of our lives for those who are in Christ Jesus.